word, I want to invite you to turn uh, to the book of Mark this morning. So we're going to Mark chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verse 1 through 11. And uh, I'm not going to read the text for you. It's pretty lengthy because you're familiar with uh, this, this Palm Sunday text. And you're familiar with the scenario that Jesus comes riding in. And, and of course, they have the palm fronds and the branches and the people are lording him and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, and the highest. And, 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 and it's pretty dramatic. And I'm thinking, you know, in my mind, there's this parade scenario. You know, this kind of like a parade scenario and maybe even leaves and stuff being thrown from the balconies or the roofs or, or I don't know. But I just kind of have this festive, you know, this festive image in my mind that this is what's happening because they're just welcoming Jesus. And, and it's, it's pretty big. And, and I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, have I ever been welcomed, you know, like that before? And, and so I was studying, sitting there at my desk and I'm thinking... You know, has there ever been a time that I have really been welcomed, you know, in a big way? And my mind goes back to 1985. I'll never forget the Christmas, the Christmas of 1985. I was a senior in, uh, in college, and I had met Heidi by this time, uh, the summer before, and Heidi and I had fell in love. And this is my wife here. It'll be 32 years this year. And we had fallen in love, and so our relationship was just brand new, and at Thanksgiving time, my mom asked the question, because we were spending every day together, she said, should I invite her parents over for Thanksgiving? You know, moms have their way, right? So I said, yeah, you probably should. And so uh, mom and dad invited her parents over to our house for Thanksgiving, which was actually across the state. And so her parents came in. At Thanksgiving, uh, I took my, my future father-in-law aside into my room, and uh, Heidi did not know this. And I... I asked my future father-in-law for his permission to marry his daughter. And, and he stood up from the bed. He had sat down and he stood up and he said, Welcome to the family, son. And he's a great big old guy. And so anyhow, whew, that was scary. And so I asked for his daughter's hand in marriage and he said, Okay. Well, anyhow, Heidi did not know that I was setting up a surprise plan to ask her to marry me. And it was going to be Christmas Eve, 1985, Christmas Eve. And so uh, Heidi left college and she went back to Idaho Falls from Nampa. I lived in Nampa. The college is in Nampa, Northwest Nazarene University. And she went across the state about a five-hour drive uh, home to, to her home with her parents for Christmas. And um, it's the only time I've ever lied to my wife because I was trying to set her up. Well, she wasn't my wife yet, but I, I, I told her I was going to Oregon for Christmas so we would not see each other for Christmas. And she was very, very sad. And so I said, I'm, in, I'm going to Oregon. And so Christmas is approaching. It's Christmas Eve. And, and what she does not know is I'm jumping in the car the, the morning of Christmas Eve and I'm driving towards her house. And uh, she thinks I'm in Oregon, but I had set up this secret supply, surprise plan with her folks. And so I'm driving towards her house. Well, a blizzard, a snowstorm had broke out. And what would normally take five hours took me nine hours to get to her house. I do not arrive at her home until 9 p.m. that night. Now, at this point... Uh, the basement was packed full of people. Her parents knew that I was going to do this. And so they had the family there and her siblings were there and they had friends over and they had church members over. I'd been the youth pastor at her church at one time. And so they had all these friends over. 
And I'm sneaking in the front door. Her dad, the wind's blowing and the, the, the snow's whipping around. And I'm, I finally arrived and I parked down the street to hide my truck. And, and the front door's cracked. He's looking out. He lets me in. He scurs me up to the third level. It's a tri-level house. And, and I go into her bedroom. And so now I'm hiding in her bedroom. It's Christmas Eve. I'm hiding in her bedroom. I've got a big red bow on me. That was my mom's idea. <laughs> Stupid. And, and, and I got, a, of course, the ring in a box. And I'm hiding in the bedroom. And now let me tell you about the Bear family. Her maiden name is Bear, B-A-R-E. So let me tell you about the Bear family. What they do is they open one gift on Christmas Eve. And then they literally open a gift every hour on the hour, Christmas Day, until midnight, Christmas Day. It's nuts. I mean, I don't know what they're... Anyhow, this is what it is. So, so anyhow, I arrive Christmas evening, and I, I get there, and I'm, I'm rushed up into the bedroom, I'm hiding. And so it's now Heidi's turn, all the friends and some church members and siblings, and everybody's there. The basement's packed, everybody's there, it's Heidi's turn to open a gift. And her mom says, wait a minute, uh, your gift is not under the tree. Here it is. She hands her an envelope, has a card in it. And on the card, her mom has written out a poem. And the poem said something about warm and fuzzy and maybe it smells a little bit. And so she immediately thought that she had and that it was hiding in a room. So she thought that she was getting a new puppy for Christmas. And so, you know, it was warm and fuzzy and smelly and all that. So anyways, so I can hear her feet, you know, on the stairs as she's going up the, you know, the staircase. And, and all of a sudden the room door bursts open and she sees me. And then she squeals at the top of her lungs, runs, slams into me, knocks me backward on the bed. I roll off the bed onto one knee and I ask Ask her to marry me and be my wife. <laughs> and, and she said, uh, she said yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that, that weekend, though, that, that, that Christmas Eve, I, I go downstairs and there's all these people in this big festivity and, and they've prepared all this food and all this stuff. And, and then on Christmas Day, when they begin to open presents, the first one when they wake up, I think stockings or something like that. And, and then they open another present the second hour. And this happens all day long. My mother-in-law, my future mother-in-law at the time, had, had bought me, purchased a present for me to open every hour on the hour. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that they had accepted me as their son already. And they, they just rolled out the red carpet. And again, they just pampered me. It's never been like that since. But anyhow, they pampered me and they loved on me and they welcomed me. And the red carpet was rolled out. And I thought to myself, that was really a king's welcome. I'm wondering if you've ever been welcomed like that. Maybe you're president of some company and, you know, they've rolled out the red carpet for you. Maybe you have a, an important role or a job or maybe you're a conference speaker or something like that. And you've arrived somewhere and they've just rolled out the carpet for you and you've received a king's welcome. That's what's happening in this passage in Mark chapter 11, looking at verses 1 through 11. That they have given Jesus Christ this king's welcome. And I, I'm trying to imagine, you know, the emotions that, that were there in, in Christ. I mean, things had been unfolding and, and they were building. And so there's this kind of culmination of events as, as Jesus was doing ministry. I mean, Jesus was, was just being Jesus. And he was doing the things that Jesus does. And Jesus was showing the people, you know, about the kingdom and how to live like the kingdom. And, and you know, all of this was happening. But they were, at this moment... They were, they were missing it. 
And I'm trying to imagine that as this culminates, how Jesus must have felt in, in what was happening and how he must have felt when he went to the, to the cross and he began to walk that path to, to Calvary and how he had the burden of all of mankind and he had, had your life in mind and my life in mind and, and all of mankind he had in mind when he went to the cross and, and how heavy that burden was. I'm trying to imagine all that Jesus Christ must have felt. And I remember Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, if possible, Father, please take this cup from me. I can't imagine his anguish. You know, it's teaching us something about, you know, how to practice our faith. Because Lent is about that. It is about practicing, learning how to practice our faith. And in faith, we are remembering. And in faith, we are, we are learning how to you know, acknowledge who Jesus Christ really is and what Jesus Christ did when he lived on this planet and, and when God had become flesh and Jesus went to the cross and he died on the cross for us and he died on the cross for me and he died on the cross for you. I'm trying to imagine what that was like for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because in all of this, there is a lesson that is saying something to us about practicing our faith. <laughs> In context, news had traveled, obviously. I mean, look at the passage for a moment. News had traveled. People obviously were anticipating he was arriving, even though they had just one idea in mind that he was going to be a king that would free them from, you know, the powers, you know, and the control of the empire, the worldly empire. But you see, Jesus was about a different empire, about a different kingdom. And we know that because we've read the rest of the story, right? But we see in... In this context, you know, that Jesus, he, he has this king's like welcome. I imagine there were questions in their mind. I mean, as those people were laying down their cloaks and as they were, you know, waving the palm fronds, as they were, you know, holding up the branches. I imagine there were questions in their minds. I mean, those people that were there that day, you know, you know, what's the kingdom going to look like and how is he going to overthrow the powers? And, you know, you can imagine there were questions that they were thinking about as well in, in their own minds. What I like about Palm Sunday, now bear with me, guys. What I like about Palm Sunday is it gives us a vision and it's the vision kind of, of of hide and seek, not uh, not necessarily hide and seek like we played when we were kids and that was kind of fun and we squealed and laughed and all that, but really of seek and find. A vision of seeking and finding because the people at that time, remember, were trying to imagine what it was like to be in context that moment that they were seeking something. And I, I propose this morning they were seeking the same kinds of things that, that we seek today. You know, those things that, that deal with purpose in life and those things that give us meaning, you know, and, and things that really matter, that really, really, really matter. The, the people they were seeking. That's what Palm Sunday was so much about. I mean, you know, asking the question, why? You know, why is this happening, maybe? Or why did they react this way? And in biblical context, can we really understand what's, what's occurring here? Because it's really not all that strange compared to humanity today as we are asking the questions of why and we're asking questions about life and purpose and meaning and really even asking the questions like, you know, 
What are we looking for as Christians? Why do we have faith? As believers, I mean, I assume we're believers because we've come here to church on Sunday morning. As believers, why do we have faith? Think about that for a moment. In fact, somebody, a couple of you respond. Why do we have faith? Somebody say something out loud. Why do we have faith? No wrong answer. Somebody say something out loud. Why do we have faith? Okay, faith gives hope. Excellent. Somebody else. Why do we have faith? Any other ideas? Find the peace of God, that we might find the peace of God so that we might have hope. I mean, you know, answering the question, why do we, we have faith? And I think in part that, that, is, that is the truth here. That no matter life's situation, no matter life's circumstances, what we're going through, what we're having to process ourselves, that there is this possible hope that, that we have in God, in Jesus Christ, that we find only in Him. In fact, go to Second Chronicles. We have it here this morning. Go to Second Chronicles this morning in chapter 30, looking at verse 18 through 20. And we see there, but Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord who is good pardon everyone who sets their heart on seeking. God, remember we're in this seek and find scenario, we are, we are seeking and we're wanting to find you know, purpose in life or find meaning in life, just as they were probably there on, on that day as they are you know, lauding Jesus as Hosanna, King of Kings. And so those, uh, those that set their hearts on seeking God, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, even if they are not clean, remember last week we spoke about the priestly understanding of of holiness, remember in the baths, you know, the Essenes were using, the priestly understanding of holiness, for those that are even not clean, those that, that you know, they're, they're not, maybe they're not perfect, according to the rules of the sanctuary, and the Lord heard Hezekiah, and he healed the people. Why? Because they were seeking God. I, I love that Kelly picked all these songs with the word Hosanna in it. And in the first service, there were even more songs, I think, with Hosanna. In Hosanna, we say, well, this means praise God. This means to glorify God. You see, that's kind of a surface meaning. But down, down underneath, the deeper meaning of Hosanna is that, that we might be secure. That, that, that we might find safety and have safety. And, and, and it's really that we desire God. When we say Hosanna, Hosanna, we're saying, God, we desire you. God, we desire you. We desire God. Again, back to this idea, the people were seeking. Amen. So this is the God of hope. The God of hope that is waiting on you and looking for you. Look at Psalm 14, 2. Go to Psalm chapter 14, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven. Remember, God is looking. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand and any who seek God. So the people were looking for a king, but what they got was a savior. They're looking for a king, but what they got was a savior. They, they were seeking I propose this morning, the second movement is that the disciples were seeking. I mean, this was the day of seeking. The disciples were seeking. They were seeking truth. In fact, the first commandment, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. Think about that. And, and we're not that surprised, again, you know, by their, their reactions. You know, the disciples' reactions, they're seeking truth. And, you know, they're just watching. They're fixed on, you know, the Savior and the example of Jesus Christ and how he's living. And, and I remember, you know, in preparation of the cross there when Jesus kneels down and he takes a basin 
in a cloth and he, he begins to wash their feet and, and their reactions and then Peter's reaction. His reaction. Wash my feet, he goes, wash all of me. And, and then later he says, you know, you're going to deny me, Peter. And, and oh, no way. And then sometime later after this, obviously, the crucifixion, what happens, or right before the crucifixion actually, Peter denies Christ. And, and it's not so surprising when I read all this you know, the disciples' reaction, though they were seeking something, they were seeking truth. But their reactions are not that much a surprise. Because it's interesting, when we find what it is that we are seeking, sometimes, because we do not like the answer, we conveniently ignore it. <laughs> we conveniently ignore it because, you know, when God then starts speaking... And he's speaking into our life. And then there's this reaction, which I, I call spiritual denial. Spiritual denial. And in spiritual denial, we avoid the area of accountability. And maybe it's getting you know, into this small group, this mission community, where we're in this community, this small group, where there's accountability. And maybe, we, maybe that's why we're avoiding that, because of, you know, because of what God is saying. And we avoid maybe sometimes what God is saying or, or we're not really, you know, the churchmen that God is calling us to be because, you know, then it means, again, intimacy, spiritual intimacy and accountability. And maybe that's even why that we avoid the piercing truth of the scripture, because the truth of the scripture is that sin is real. And if we allow ourselves to be exposed to the truth of the scripture, then we have to admit some of these things and so, you know, there's this reaction. It's not a surprise they react the way they do. Well, fortunately, the disciples recognize their need for the Christ that Jesus showed them and carries on the mission. And, and I, I think that really is a hinge, you know, a hinge point for us as a church because, you know, the true disciple, and this is, I know this is daring and I know this is bold, and maybe I shouldn't say it, but I'm going to say it. The true disciple is about the mission. The true disciple is about the mission. And, and I love the fact that we are called Mission Church of the Nazarene because, you see, the church should be about the mission that God has called us to, the mission that God has given us. And, and part of the mission we identify as a church is that, that we are going to seek and that we're going to serve and we're going to, to reach, you know, people for the kingdom of God. But the big part is, is this first one when we talk about seeking. Because seeking is defined by our mission as as discipleship, and that, that we believe that God has called us to discipleship, that God has called us to be a disciple. A disciple is a student, that means as a disciple, like the disciples of Christ, we are learning what it means to live and to walk like Jesus. As a discipler, that means we are teaching, we are teaching others how to live and walk like Jesus. So the distinct part of our mission is saying that we believe in this community that is called discipleship in this small community or this mission community is what we call them, a mission community where we learn the word of God and learn how to live like Jesus Christ. And we have mission communities. We have, we have Sunday school classes, you know, before and after services. We have Sunday school classes. We have a Wednesday night Bible study schedule. And, and in fact, I, I challenge us. I want to empower you. If God's moving your heart to start a, a, a Bible study or a small group, a mission community, that you start that so that we might be in this, this experience of, of, of the kingdom of God in the community of Jesus Christ. So God is, is waiting for us. 
And if we are a disciple of Christ, we're going to we're going to seek God through discipleship. Um, the, the third movement is God is waiting for us to seek him. So the disciple, the disciple is about the mission and disciples were seeking the truth. Well, then God is waiting for us to seek him. I think of Matthew 6:33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. And so we see that the foundational idea here is that that we are seeking first the kingdom of God. That's the first step. That we are seeking the kingdom of God. And in fact, there are some things I've I've learned about seeking the kingdom. And I want to share them with you. Here's the first one. Seeking first his kingdom. And by the way, if you're filling in the notes, this is where you fill them in at. Seeking first his kingdom introduces us to Jesus. Look at John chapter 10, verse 30. There we read, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. In fact, and then later on in John chapter uh, 1, we read there in the beginning was the Word. And sometimes the Word, it is, it is the written Word, the, the Bible that we hold. But sometimes it, it means the Word that has become flesh. It's Christ. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on, around 14, 15, verse 14, 15, the Word becomes flesh and dwelt among us. And so we understand that, that Jesus Christ was not just a good man. He, he, he is God that has become flesh. He is Emmanuel. Amen. And so we can say that seeking first his kingdom introduces us to Jesus Christ. You want to know about the kingdom of God, know about Jesus Christ. You want to be a part of the kingdom and walk in the kingdom, then walk with Jesus Christ. Amen. I mean, I, I can't help myself. Every time we get together, man, it ought to be about Jesus Christ. Because that's what being a Christian is about. It's Jesus Christ. The second thing is seeking first his kingdom introduces us to the kingdom. Did you catch that? It introduces us to the kingdom when we seek first the kingdom. And it's not the kingdom of this world but is the kingdom that ushers us into the presence of God, who is creator of heaven and earth. It, it ushers us into the presence of Jesus Christ, and we experience Christ intimately and personally as we become a part of his kingdom, and we learn about what it means to be the hands and the feet of Christ in this world in which we live. In fact, what did Jesus say when he said, pray like this? He says, pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom comes. So as this kingdom comes and we become a part of that kingdom and we are that kingdom for this world, there's hurting lost, hurting and lost that the, 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 the faith of Christ then comes alive in other people's hearts because they've experienced and they see that kingdom active through you and in your life. So seeking first this kingdom introduces us to the kingdom. Here's the last idea, the last thought. Seeking first his kingdom introduces us to eternity. It introduces us to, it's, it's really, it's, it's justification. It introduces us to this dynamic of justification that God is a just God and deserves, you know, justice and that, that his son became flesh and his son was, was the last sacrifice necessary. We talked about that last Sunday. And so there is this revelation that is spiritual, that, that we experience justification in Jesus Christ. I uh, <clears throat> was invited by Sam Powell, who's a professor at Point Loma Nazarene University. He was in our early service this morning. And I was invited, along with other clergy, to attend a lecture. He had a guest speaker, a, a, a 
a professor from another university that came. He was an expert on John and Charles Wesley and was writing about uh, the, methodolo the methodology of Methodism. And it was interesting. It was an interesting lecture <clears throat> because the lecturer was talking about how Methodism and why Methodism was so effective. And, and part of it was the process or the methodology. That's why they're called Methodists. The methodology of, of ministry. And what they did is they had, they had the public proclamation where, you know, there, there was the voice as they spoke into the public and uh, preached in the public. Then there were the societies and they would invite people to come and be a part of the society. And then from there, they'd invite them to be a part of the classes which is really the small group or the mission community, like our small groups or our home groups. And so they're invited to be a part of the classes. And then, and then the clergy and lay people that were prepared, they would do home visits. And in the home visit, they would share their story, how they began to walk in faith or how they were walking by faith in Jesus Christ. And, and in the methodology, what they said is they didn't go out and just say, okay, you need to accept Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus because people did not respond to that. But what their methodology did is it, it invited people into their societies, into their classes, you know, in, in, and then into their homes where they did this discipling and where they did this teaching. And it was in small community within community, which was the kingdom, that they began to experience other believers living by faith. And as they watched other people live by faith, something came alive in them. And justification became a reality and they began to say, I want what these people want. Because they were experiencing life in community. And I wonder if sometimes you get it in reverse. And we were wondering, you know, well, we want people to know who Jesus is. You see, the first step is that we invite them to come into our community. They come into our small group and listen, that may not be on Sunday morning. That, that might be at your house. It might be in your small group at your home or, or maybe a Sunday school class or a Bible study that you start. Remember I said I empower you. I, I bless you and charge you to start a Bible study or a small group or teach a class that, that we might be about the discipleship part, that seek, the discipleship part of the mission that God has called us to in his kingdom. Amen. And people discover the kingdom in the experience of of community. And there's something precious about that. When we begin to see other people walk by faith and people see you walk by faith. You see, that's a testimony right there. And they see that and say, I want what they have. And a life is transformed because we experience, we experience the kingdom in community. Amen. And we've gathered this morning in community. And we are worshiping this morning in faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to invite us to just experience even this corporate communion today in community. I understand, especially for Lent in Holy Week, it is a time of reflection and remembering. And it becomes almost this personal space, you know. But I, I want to invite us as we come to have communion together that we would come as one family, that we'd come as as the body of Christ and that we'd have communion together and we'd remember together what Jesus Christ did for us upon the cross. Amen.
the sacrifice that he made when he died upon that cross and that we come as one at one table as our liturgy will say and I'll share that in just a moment but that we come as one at one table recognizing united and together that we have one Lord and that's that one Lord that we worship and we serve today and we, I believe, Palm Sunday challenges us to invite people to come into our community. Next Sunday's Easter. Invite somebody. Bring them here to watch us walk by faith. So let's remember this morning what Jesus has done for us in community.